I'm Rabbi Michael Hilton, an Honorary Research Fellow at the Centre for Jewish Studies at the University of Manchester. I'm a Jew who's been in dialogue with Christians my whole life. I've written two books on Jewish-Christian relations. One, A Study Guide, which places Gospel and Rabbinic texts side by side, and the second, Exploring the Influence of Christianity on Jewish life through the ages. In this podcast, I'm going to explore with you a very old debate. It's about whether Jews or Christians are the true people of Israel. I'm going to begin with a fascinating statement by the biblical prophet Jeremiah, who looked forward to the time when the people's troubles would be over and God would establish what he called a new covenant, in Hebrew, Berit Chadash, with the house of Israel. The people, he said, had broken the old covenant, but the new covenant with the house of Israel would be different. I will put my Torah, my teaching, inside them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. These stirring words echo across the ages from 2,500 years ago, when Jeremiah's people were in exile in Babylon. The people have broken their covenant, their agreement with God, which they made at Mount Sinai, when they said, Na'a we will do and we will obey. Jews and Christians share a common Bible. To the Jew, it's the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. For the Christian, the same books make up what is called the Old Testament, though arranged in a slightly different order. But just as British and Americans are sometimes said to be two nations divided by a common language, so Jews and Christians can be said to be two faiths divided by a common Bible, so differently do they read the same words. For the Jew... The new covenant does not invalidate the old one. On the contrary, it renews it. We read it in the context of Jeremiah's own time. In exile in Babylon, the people had no temple, no longer any single place of God's presence. And so in future, God's teaching, the Torah, will have to be in their hearts. The New Covenant therefore marks the beginning of a shift towards Jews as a people who will study and learn. But for the Christian, the New Covenant added to the Old One in a very different way, as many Christian commentaries show. Here is Matthew Henry from 1708. All shall be welcome to the knowledge of God, and all shall have the means of that knowledge. There shall be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the time of the Gospel. No man shall finally perish but for his own sins, if he is willing to accept of Christ's salvation. Early Christians, including the writers of the Christian scriptures, read the Hebrew Bible not in the original Hebrew but in Greek translations, especially the one known as the Septuagint. In the Greek, the New Covenant is subtly different in the Septuagint, 
not the Hebrew word berit, a covenant, but the Greek word diatheke, which originally denoted a will or testament. And so, from this Jeremiah verse in the Greek version, we get the title of the Christian scriptures, Hekaine diatheke, in English, the New Testament. What's more, as time went on, the church fathers began to proclaim that the church had supplanted the Jewish people, and henceforth was the true Israel. Some, such as Justin Martyr in the 2nd century, and Tertullian in the 3rd century of the Christian era, emphasised the persistent failure and disobedience of Jews, culminating in their crucifixion of Jesus and rejection of the message of Easter. Justin Martyr's book Dialogue with Trifo, from around the year 160 of the Christian era, is written as an extensive debate between a Jew Trifo and the Christian Justin. This book gives us our very earliest evidence for using the word Israel to apply to the Christian. The church, he argues, has come to be the heir to all that the Israelites once possessed. What's more, Justin asserts that the very Bible sacred to Jews now truly belongs to the church. As he says to the Jew Trifo, Your scriptures, or rather not yours, but ours, for we obey them, but you, though you read them, do not catch the spirit that is in them. In other words, Jews have been cast off by God and their inheritance given to Christians. Christianity has superseded Judaism an idea we call supersessionism, or replacement theology. In the terrible history of Jewish-Christian relations, there has been no more disastrous doctrine. Jews could be persecuted, expelled, exposed, but not destroyed. Better they survive as shameful examples, witnesses of what happens to the people who reject Christ. Of course, it wasn't like that for all Jews in Christian lands everywhere. Replacement theology was not a universal Christian doctrine, but it was, and still is, a very destructive and unpleasant one. And I'll come back later to the question of how it affects our Jewish-Christian dialogue today. But why wasn't it obvious to everyone? that it was the rabbis of the day who proclaimed Torah, the law of the Old Testament, rather than the church. At this point I need to explain something really important. Neither Jews nor Christians today, or in the time of the church fathers, practice the religion of the Hebrew Bible, with its animal offerings, rituals of purification for disease, killing a rebellious son, and trial by ordeal. By the time of Jesus, the process had already begun of discussing precisely how the law was to be observed, and some of this can be seen already in the Christian scriptures, for example in the discussions with the Pharisees and debates about how to observe the Sabbath. The Jew who wishes to observe the law in all its detail today turns not to the Bible, but to one of the law codes which draw on the debates of the scholars and teachers of old known as rabbis, 
the spiritual successes to those Pharisees in the Christian scriptures. Judaism today is essentially rabbinic Judaism rather than just biblical Judaism. Though our scriptures remain the same holy books, we read them through rabbinic lenses and commentary, and we pray prayers and observe festivals and life cycle rituals produced in their detail by that rabbinic tradition. And it's a tradition by no means as hypocritical and showy as the Judaism of the Pharisees described in Gospel stories. Over the centuries, Jewish and Christian prayers have taken different shapes, but there's much in common, drawn from our shared scriptures. Many Christians have revered Judaism as an ancient religion which preceded theirs. In the medieval mystery plays performed throughout England and Europe, Old Testament characters were sometimes depicted in contemporary Jewish dress, good characters. But also, there was that other image, a malignant image, the Jew who was despised as a non-believer, whose lifestyle was seen as the deliberate rejection of Christ. For the rest of this talk, I'm going to look at what's happened in our modern era of dialogue. The huge changes that have come about can be traced to the aftermath of the Second World War, when a wave of sympathy for Jews surged across the Christian world, after it was discovered that six million Jews, one-third of all Jews in the world and 85% of those in continental Europe, had perished in the Nazi Holocaust. Gradually, old church doctrines came under scrutiny, and replacement theology was one of them. In what follows, I'm relying on the writing and broadcast talks by Rabbi David Rosen. He's explained in his lectures how Pope John XXIII deeply felt the pain of Jewish history, especially the Holocaust, and the burden on the church which had contributed to that pain. He never accepted those teachings, and before he was Pope, he personally saved thousands of Jews from the Nazis. As Pope, he wanted to address the problem of those old teachings of contempt about Jews, and he commissioned a document for his new council, Vatican II, from a remarkable cardinal, Augustine Baer. The document was published in 1965, which was after Pope John had died, by his successor, Pope Paul VI and it was entitled in Latin Nostra Aetate, In Our Time. This official publication proclaimed, 1. That any attempt to present the Jews as cursed or rejected by God or collectively guilty is wrong. 2. That the covenant between God and the Jewish people has never been broken, for, quote, God does not repent of his gifts. 3. Jews were not guilty of deicide, of killing God, and four, anti-Semitism by anyone at any level at any time is to be condemned. Not all of this was new in 1965, but put together 
alongside the idea that Jews still have a significant role to play in God's plans for humanity, that was completely revolutionary. David Rosen puts it like this, It was a turn on its head of the whole approach to the Jewish people by the Catholic Church, and so we come to the situation today where Pope John Paul II can visit the synagogue in Rome in 1986 and say not only that the Jew is the dearly beloved older brother of the church, but that the church can have a relationship with Judaism which is intrinsic to its identity, a relationship like it can have with no other religion. Today, Pope Francis has gone even further and stated that it's not possible to be a real Christian and an anti-Semite. The love of the Jew is intrinsic to Christianity. David Rosen calls it an unparalleled revolution in human history, and it teaches us that if the relationship between Jews and Christians can be healed, no human relationship is beyond transformation. What's more, in 2015 it was announced that, quote, the Catholic Church neither conducts nor supports any specific institutional mission work directed towards Jews. There is no doubt at all that this sea change in the thinking of the Roman Catholic Church has positively influenced many other Christian groups, but I do not know of any other church which has made such a bold and welcome statement about mission. The Jewish people await it with hope. I'd like to end with a topic which is less fundamental, less crucial, but nevertheless important for the day-to-day -day relationship between churches and the Jewish community. Over the past half-century, in an era of modern dialogue between Jews and Christians, a new conversation has opened up about the historical development of Easter and Passover. The Christian Eucharist is modelled on that last meal Jesus took with his disciples. The accounts in Matthew, Mark and Luke describe this as a Passover meal. With their new understanding of the Jewish roots of Christianity, many Christians today hold their own Passover meal or Seder, as it is called. Sometimes they try to reconstruct what might have happened in the time of Jesus, and sometimes they use the Haggadah, the book we Jews use at our Seder services. Pastor Tom Holliday of Saddleback, based in Orange County, California, has been guiding church communities through Christian-themed Passover Seders for more than 30 years. One year, he held a Seder session from a stage in front of 20,000 Saddleback members. He explains it like this. He says, Participating in the Passover Seder reminds us of how tied we are to our Jewish roots, noting that Jesus and his disciples were Jewish. He says that the ritual helps Christians become more familiar with Judaism, and promotes understanding between two religions. The common symbols of the Passover story are completely reinterpreted in a Christian context. 
in holidays explanation leaven hebrew chametz is a symbol of sin and passover is about purifying oneself from those sins the sacrificial lamb and the blood the Israelites put on their doors so the angel of death would pass over their homes, they are invoked as symbols of Jesus' sacrifice and suffering. Holidays says the Christians today want to identify with the freedom God gave to the Israelites, and that the Passover Seder is a deep part of Easter celebration. It all starts with the very fact that Jesus' disciples celebrated that Seder the night before Jesus died. Many Jews have been willing to help and advise Christian friends with such celebrations. But the Christian use of Jewish rites in this way has also led to criticism both from other Christians and from Jews. I first wrote about this problem in my book The Christian Effect on Jewish Life back in 1994 and this is what I said. There is no clear evidence that any elements of the Seder predate the destruction of the year 70 CE and even if they did they took on a new role in the Rabbinic Seder. Christians, then, who seek through the Seder a knowledge of the Jewish roots of Christianity, are mistaken. The Gospel accounts of the Last Supper and the Rabbi's account of the Seder represent two different and totally incompatible ways of different communities struggling to come to terms with the loss. The loss of Jesus the loss of the temple, the loss of Jerusalem. To perform a Seder in a church shortly before Easter is to attempt to construct an impossible historical narrative. The rituals of the rabbis cannot be the rites in which Jesus took part before he died. To the Jew, the Seder is not a last supper to be replaced in a future world by a new revelation and understanding. It is a living text, which is a deep and rich source of creativity and inspiration. True dialogue demands that we attempt to understand how each community lives with the tradition of its own text. It does not demand that we must assimilate the texts of another faith into our own tradition. You see, for me, that church seder is a modern version of the old replacement theology. It's not as destructive. Indeed, it's often motivated by a desire for a friendship with Jews. But the underlying narrative that Christianity has replaced Judaism, can be seen within it. We still have many tasks to do to improve Jewish-Christian relations. But overall, the modern understanding by Christians that Jesus was a Jew who lived a Jewish life has been helpful to building peaceful relations between our faiths. The truth is, 
that we Jews and Christians need each other. We have taken parallel paths through history, never joining up, but never diverging completely. Properly understood, the differences between our faiths are a debate for the sake of heaven which energizes us. If we could work together more closely, recognizing and celebrating our differences, we could help in the task of building peace in the world and hastening the time, as the prophet said, when the world will be full of the fear of God as the waters cover the sea. Mm-hmm.